Welcome to Broad Eye, the podcast that explores knowledge gaps in ophthalmology and eye care. Welcome to the Broad Eye podcast. My name is Dr. Deborah Megan Saft, known as Megan to my friends, and I'd like to introduce you to Dr. Caitlin Reimer, who I'm going to call Katie. And we went to medical school together, and she's a family doctor, and I'm an ophthalmologist, and we're bringing you an episode today where we could talk about how the eyes also tell us things about what's going on in the body and how the things that we need to look uh, at in the eye. So why don't we kick things off with a very common disease that is common both for family doctors and for ophthalmologists. Um, and let's start with thyroid disease. So uh, Megan, so this is Katie speaking. And so um, Megan, what would make you be worried uh, that someone might have a thyroid related eye disease? So thyroid eye disease is most frequently associated with people who have hyperthyroidism, which is about uh, in 90% of the cases. And then the rest of the 10% of the cases either have a normal thyroid function or an under-functioning also known as hypothyroidism. And some of the things that I would look for on physical exam are things like eyelid retraction, which is the most common presenting sign of thyroid eye disease, lid lags of the upper eyelids on downward gaze, unilateral or bilateral axial proptosis. So one eye or both eyes appear very prominent when looking at the patient. And this has secondary things, like you could get exposure of the cornea causing very dry eyes, as well as the extraocular muscles, the muscles that move the eye can frequently become thickened and enlarged. And this can cause trouble looking up or double vision. And the last thing, which is very rare in about less than 5% of patients is something called compressive optic neuropathy. And this is an ophthalmological emergency um, due to the extraocular muscles and the orbital fat just getting bigger and causing compression of the optic nerve. But it's very rare. So I don't want people to worry about this. So Katie, tell me when you get patients from a referring doctor wondering about thyroid related uh, diseases, what are some of the things that you ask the patient? Uh, so that's a great question, Megan. So um, family doctors get asked many questions about possible thyroid related illness maybe because it's actually a topic that's very often discussed and, and family members are very open about having thyroid disease. I guess there's no real stigma related to that. And what, be, what would be most important to identify would be whether the patient could be in a low, so hypothyroid state or a high hyperthyroid state. So symptoms of a hypothyroid state would include uh, fatigue, weight gain, um, increased in uh, period or menstrual flow in women, constipation, always feeling colder than others in the same sort of environment, um, dry skin, um, and sometimes even mental health changes, most notably depression. And how we remember this is these are symptoms of a slow metabolic state. And so hypo, slow, those go together. Uh, symptoms of a hyperthyroid state include unintentional weight loss. So people who say, Oh my God, I've lost 15 pounds in the last month for no reason. Light periods, uh, diarrhea, sweating, or consequently feeling hotter than others, palpitations, and some mental health changes as well, uh, notably anxiety. And it's, it's also important whether uh, there are any thyroid diseases in the person's family. So again, not only hypo or hyper, but history of thyroid masses 
thyroid cancer, goiter, some of those examples. So let's say a patient comes to you and they're having symptoms of either hypo or hyperthyroidism. What kind of investigations or blood tests would you do at that point? Uh, so identifying whether someone has a thyroid condition or not is, is actually quite straightforward. Testing a person's TSH uh, or thyroid stimulating hormone would be the first step. A doctor might only order a TSH on the blood test, but thankfully uh, the lab where the blood test is being drawn will automatically add your T3 and T4 levels if the TSH itself is outside of the normal range. Um, T3, T4 are the active thyroid hormones that the body actually uses. And so a low T3 or T4 equals hypothyroid and a high T3 or T4 means hyperthyroid. We do have the option to also check thyroid antibodies as well. Uh, once a thyroid condition is diagnosed, this is um, also a blood test and a thyroid ultrasound can also be done to document uh, if there are any thyroid nodules. If there's a goiter or uh, a global increase in size of the thyroid gland or um, other masses that might also be present and of concern. So I think that this is a lot of information for people. And before we totally scare them, we should let them know that <laughs> thyroid related disease is something that's completely treatable. And maybe if you just want to let us know what some of the treatments are that are available. Of course. So yeah, so thyroid illnesses are, are very, very much treatable. And the principle of treatment of hypothyroidism hinges on the replacement of thyroid hormone with a synthetic thyroid hormone, also known as Synthroid. So you kind of see how those, those words go together. Um, and the dose of Synthroid is really person dependent. Uh, some people need varying doses of thyroid hormone. And it's not always like, oh, she's a small woman, so she needs a small dose, and he's a big man, so he needs a big dose. Um, I have some small women who take higher doses uh, than, you know, some probably weightlifters could. Um, and the treatment of hypothyroidism really hinges on getting the TSH to return to a normal range, uh, as well as the T3 and T4. And then treatment of hyperthyroidism is a little more complex as there can be many reasons someone is hyperthyroid. So uh, if, if a patient has an overactive nodule in their thyroid, it can be treated with radioactive iodine. So that's when the patient actually ingests a radioactive substance, um, iodine, that, that, that is then picked up by the thyroid gland and from there kind of sort of renders those cells that pick up that iodine inactive. Um, so that's one treatment. Part of the thyroid, thyroid can be removed surgically and other oral medications can be given as well, depending on the severity of the hyperthyroidism and depending on the cause as well. Do you think you get superpowers when you ingest the radioactive iodine? <laughs> that would, you know, sort of Spider-Man sort of things. The one thing <laughs> I do know is that uh, um, anyone who is taking the radioactive iodine, um, no one else can handle, uh, or they have to make sure that after they use the washroom, and other family members are in the home that they have to clean down the washroom uh, uh, very well because they can actually excrete uh, some radioactive particles. <laughs> uh, so we gotta, we really gotta be careful there. Um, and so question for you, Megan. So once the patient is diagnosed with a thyroid eye, uh, eye thyroid condition or eye disease itself, how often do they need to come to see you for follow-up? So if someone is diagnosed with a thyroid condition, they don't necessarily have to come see the ophthalmologist, but a lot of people have mild symptoms of one thing or the other. So I, they do often end up in my chair. If there's some 
a thyroid related eye disease, either the eyes are more prominent or it's causing severe dry eye. As long as things are stable, I usually let them know that I could see them every six months or once a year is usually enough. But then of course, if there's things that are really difficult to get under control, like very bad dry eyes because of exposure, or I'm worried about any uh, compression of the nerve, these are things that get followed up extremely uh, carefully and, and closely. But it really depends on what the person's bothered by. It's not something that necessarily has uh, this number of months for every person with thyroid disease. It's something that's very tailored to the person and their experience. And are any of the treatment options that would make you want to have the patient come in and see you more often? Yeah, so actually with hyperthyroidism, as we were yeah. talking about the radioactive iodine, right after or soon after in the weeks or months following uh, the ingestion of the iodine, the thyroid eye disease can actually get a little bit or significantly worse. So mm -hmm. in these cases, I like to see them uh, soon after that they have it and a few uh, weeks or months later, depending on how they're feeling and how their blood tests are leveling out. Oh, that's good to know. And on my part, that's good to know as well. <laughs> yeah, that's what this podcast is all about. <laughs> so uh, Katie, I was thinking that we could also talk about diabetes, since it's something we both mm -hmm. uh, deal with all the time and is quite mm -hmm. common in the general population. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. And so uh, to start off, Megan, so do you often see patients getting screened for diabetes? Yeah, so the interesting thing about diabetes is there's a shocking number of times per year that I examine someone who comes in just for a routine yearly checkup and I find changes related to diabetes. So sometimes mm -hmm. I find it and have to send patients to the family doctor to get worked up. But um, when people are initially diagnosed with diabetes, type two diabetes, uh, they often get sent to me right away just because it's not really always known how long the person has had diabetes for. Um, but patients with uh, type one diabetes, usually they're even getting checked as a kid. So it depends uh, on everyone's situation, but I often see patients uh, in relation to their diabetes. And it, like I said, it's up to me to make sure sometimes uh, that patients are evaluated and started on the appropriate mm -hmm. treatment. But that's when I need uh, friends like you, Katie, <laughs> who take care of the whole body. So when you get a referral from an ophthalmologist or another eye care specialist telling you that they suspect that one of your patients in your practice has diabetes, what are the, some of the things that you do uh, to look into it or investigate it? Uh, yeah, so as you already said, Megan, diabetes is one of the most common medical conditions in family practice. And especially these days, unfortunately, with, you know, worsening um, habits of eating healthy and exercising, um, we currently use certain screening tests to detect diabetes early. And so we recommend starting screening at around age 40 or earlier, depending on certain risk factors, for example, family history of diabetes, personal uh, obesity, so anyone with, an, with a BMI uh, over 30, um, history of smoking, um, and of course, various other symptoms. Um, blood test screening includes uh, the hemoglobin A1C, as well as the fasting sugar or glucose. Um, the hemoglobin A1C basically measures the percentage of your hemoglobin or your red blood cells that have sugar attached to them. So 
we all need to have sugar in our blood. And so um, it's normal to have a certain percentage of our red blood cells that have sugar on them. Um, but diabetes is uh, when that percentage increases above 6.5%. And uh, these results can be classified either as normal. So that's an A1C below, uh, uh, below 6%. Uh, pre-diabetic, which is between 6 to 6.4, and diabetic itself, which is over 6.5%. So let's say you get these uh, hemoglobin A1C blood test results, and it's suggestive that the patients that I've sent to you or patients that you're screening regularly in your clinic have diabetes. Does it always need to be treated? And if so, uh, what are some of the things that you do with patients in order to get the treatment started? Uh, yeah, so diabetes, just a note, diabetes always has to be treated. Um, so by treated, I don't necessarily mean starting medication, but we always have to make certain changes um, to, to treat the diabetes and prevent it from getting worse, uh, because there are certain um, consequences of untreated diabetes that are very important to prevent. Um, and so, for example, if the result of the A1C comes back as pre-diabetes, then usually lifestyle modifications, for example, diet and exercise, um, are implemented to try and achieve a healthy sugar level. Um, and with luck, if the patient is motivated and they get a lot of support from their doctor, nurses, dietitians, et cetera, then they're able to bring themselves back down into a healthy uh, sugar level, which is always our goal. However, if unfortunately uh, they are just diagnosed with full-out diabetes um, right off the bat, or if they are not as able to follow the lifestyle recommendations, then they might go up to uh, diabetes itself. So diabetes type two, um, which is usually diagnosed in adulthood, we add um, what we call oral hypoglycemic agents or OHAs, um, uh, as well as doing the strict lifestyle modification. So we never you know, doctors will never suggest to give up lifestyle modifications. Um, they'll always say that that's the crux of treating diabetes and that all the other treatments um, are supportive uh, from there. Um, there are many different types of OHAs. Um, however, uh, if these fail um, after adding, you know, maybe three or four different medications, if these fail to reduce the A1C into an acceptable level, then we do usually have to move on to insulin injections. And that can be anywhere from one up to four times per day. Um, and so patients very often want to avoid insulin injections as much as possible, which I totally understand and, and I agree with. Um, however, you know, it requires, you know, a joint effort in terms of getting them into uh, a healthy A1C range, which for di most diabetics is an A1C under 7%. That's usually our goal. Um, and then, so then Megan, once, uh, the patient is diagnosed with diabetes, um, how often should they see you, um, to check on their eyes, which is, like I said, one of the, uh, consequences of diabetes that we want to avoid. Yeah. So in general, uh, patients should be seen at least once a year, uh, if they're known to have systemic diabetes to see if there's any ocular complications. That being said, there are different kinds of uh, symptoms of diabetes, uh, signs and symptoms of diabetes in the eyes. 
and two broad classes. So there's non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which then gets further classified into mild, moderate, and severe. And then there's proliferative diabetic retinopathy, which is when there's abnormal blood vessels that are growing either on the retina, around the optic nerve, or from uh, the retina into the vitreous. And, that can, and then you could get diabetic bleeds and things like that. As well, you can also get diabetic macular edema, which is a fancy way of saying that the retina, which is the wallpaper of the eye or the film in the camera of the eye, becomes swollen in its center. And all of these different things can change how frequently a person gets followed up. So for example, if a person has diabetic macular edema and it fits the criteria of needing treatment, then um, we also give needles to patients. And I think they might like it even less than the needles that you're giving them because <laughs> for us, it's intraocular or a very fancy way of seeing needles into the eye, very small needles and people are frozen well, and it's actually quite painless. But it's usually pretty, pretty a good uh, motivator for me to say, you know, your family doctor told you and I'm telling you again. Um, and, uh, you know, sugar control at this point becomes uh, very important for them as well, because it could help, you know, not only the local treatments with the needles or sometimes lasers, but uh, just the systemic control can help uh, the eyes uh, improve as well. So if there's any findings or things that I'm worried about, I'll see them more often, but at the bare minimum, if it, you know, a once a year checkup is definitely recommended. Awesome, your, your, your reference to the retina being uh, the film of the camera of the eye or the wallpaper of the eye, I really, uh, I, I feel that. I'm gonna start using that with my patients as well. Yeah, I love I love the analogy of the eye like a camera, you know, yeah. the lens yeah. is the, the cataract and the retina is oh. the film. Yeah, cool. so so the diabetes affects really the back part of the yeah. eye, which is yeah. the retina. Yeah, I'm glad I could give you some fancy lingo. To <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, that might be a good time to pivot away from diabetes. And so I was thinking that we could talk about headaches because Headaches are this medical phenomenon where people are really suffering and they go from their family doctor to their eye doctor to other healthcare specialists. So I was thinking maybe we could talk about, you know, things that you hear from your patients and, and things that I see when I see people or look for when mm -hmm. I see people with headaches. So maybe Katie, uh, if you want to dive in and tell me what kind of headache complaints, for example, would make you think that your patient should go uh, see an eye care professional. Yeah, so, so yeah, so besides um, thyroid disease and diabetes, you know, headaches is another super frequent um, reason for consultation uh, in a family medicine clinic. Um, and often, I would say more often than not, I suggest that um, my patients with headaches uh, check with maybe not necessarily an ophthalmologist, but, a, but definitely an optometrist to, uh, um, you know, to check the health of their eyes um, in general, uh, but specifically if they have headaches that include visual changes, right? So blurry vision, loss of vision, uh, black spots in their vision. So uh, like, like really like areas that they really can't see anything um, or if they have uh, a red or painful eye, um, I definitely would refer them uh, to get their eyes checked. Um, and other neurological symptoms as well. So things like numbness, um, some like what not necessarily in the eye or around the eye or on the face, but body numbness, any sort of focal weakness, 
um, loss of motor function in certain parts of the body as well um, uh, should trigger uh, the thought to send them to see uh, an eye health professional as well. And in that, you know, in that vein, Megan, if you have someone who's referred to you, whether they have headaches or not, but in the context specifically of headaches, what are some of the things that you ask, you yourself ask on history when you're trying to figure out if these headaches potentially could be related to, to the eyes or certain eye conditions? Yeah, so uh, sometimes being an ophthalmologist feels a little bit like being a detective. So even it's funny because you would think that some of the questions that I ask, the answers would be obvious, but it isn't always. And one of the things I do is I ask patients to do headache journals. So I ask them, you know, how often are you getting headaches per month? Uh, is there anything obvious that's triggering it? Reading, driving, any foods that you're eating? And it's not always obvious. Pe people know that they have headaches and they know they're suffering and they're definitely suffering. But in order to tease things out a little bit, if patients don't have good answers to those questions, I often ask them to do a headache journal. Just keep a little uh, post-it note or scrap uh, paper in their pocket or their purse and uh, make a note of what they were doing around when they noticed that they were getting a headache. And then, you know, things that would worry me, things like nausea and vomiting, of course, any changes in your vision uh, or the patient's vision, rather not yours, Katie. And, um, <laughs> you know, there's some, uh, there's some um, systemic conditions as well, specifically the one I'm thinking of is mm -hmm. called IIH or idiopathic intracranial hypertension, also known as pseudotumor cerebri. And these patients present often with transient visual obscuration. So what that means is uh, a darkening of the vision, often when changing positions from lying or, or lying mm -hmm. to uh, sitting or standing yeah. too quickly um, or, ex or with exercise as well, that would make me think of that and a whooshing in their ears, like a ch and I made that sound mm. on the podcast and it's just as embarrassing when I make it in, in person, but sometimes patients, their eyes get really wide and they go, how did you know I was hearing that? So those are some of the things that I ask when I think about headaches and then other things, because in ophthalmology, we see a lot of patients with migraines because mm. we can get ocular uh, symptoms to migraine. So things like photophobia, which is a fancy way of saying the light really bothers them. Uh, phonophobia, which is noises bothering them and, and scintillating scotomas, which are uh, one of the patients described it to me as little shimmering fireflies uh, in their eyesight. <laughs> um, and cluster headaches actually cause a lot, a lot of eye symptoms. So they get tearing, they get horrible pain behind the eye, as well as blurry vision and a bit of conjunctival injection or like a pinkish or red eye. So those are some of the, the places uh, where I start. And obviously there's not one clue, but so these patients get the full eye exam, the front and the dilated exam. And the thing I'm always, always wanting to see in these cases is the optic nerve. Mm -hmm. And that's because with uh, optic nerve swelling, um, it can, be an indication of something that's going on inside uh, the head with the brain or too much fluid uh, around the brain and things like that. So I'm always, you know, silently hoping to myself having my uh, toes crossed because I'm using my hands to examine the patient, but I'm always really, really hoping there's no uh, optic nerve swelling. And like you were saying, uh, it can also be a refractive problem. So a question about glasses. So if my exam is totally normal, then I usually uh, tell patients to see their optometrist, uh, like you were saying, in case it's just a question of glasses needing uh, to be tweaked. 
So let's say you send me a patient and I examine them and it's completely normal in terms of their eye exam. What are some simple ways that some patients could manage headaches? Because these people really are suffering. So I'm sure you have some tricks up your sleeve for them. Yeah. So headaches. And so what I explain to patients about headaches is that the head hurting, unlike the shoulder hurting, unlike the knee hurting, unlike the belly hurting, does not necessarily mean there is a problem in the brain. Um, and so a lot of people get worried about, could they have a brain tumor? Could they have, could they be bleeding in their brain? And um, for all medical concerns and conditions, I always tell my patients, anything is possible, but let's talk about what's probable. And so um, someone with headaches, again, you know, we, you know, we think, oh, there must be something wrong with my head. So we check the eyes, maybe we check the hearing and okay, like both of those are fine. Um, but there can be many kind of innocuous things that we don't really consider could be problematic um, in our daily lives that can lead to us, to us having headaches. Um, and so there are many lifestyle or habit changes that can lead to an improvement of chronic, recurrent, or difficult to treat headaches. Uh, so making sure to eat regular meals throughout the day. So not skipping meals, uh, not uh, even having snacks regularly can help as well. Exercising regularly. Um, and again, when I tell my patients, that's not necessarily, I don't mean for you to go start CrossFit, you know, you just going outside for a walk, getting fresh air, deconnecting from your job, from, you know, the stressors in your life can be very helpful. Um, and finally, ensuring regular sleep hours. So um, uh, if you usually go to sleep at 11 and wake up at seven, then it's good to keep that those regular hours. Um, if one night you go to bed at two and wake up at 10, uh, that can be very hard um, on your overall lifestyle. And that could lead to having headaches, even though you still slept eight hours. Um, and some of these changes, if you're able to implement them regularly, they can have long lasting effects. Um, and another big one. So another one, especially broached, uh, in these COVID times is managing stress. Um, so stress reduction strategies. So whether that includes, um, deep breathing, things like yoga, Tai Chi, meditation, mindfulness, um, these are all things that a lot of people scoff at, but that could really, you know, uh, help you learn how to deconnect um, uh, from, from stressors, uh, especially working from home, living at home, being at home, it's, it's a lot to take on. Um, and reduction in screen time, that's a, that's a hard one, right? So uh, our charts as doctors are often on the computer, we're often consulting results on the computer, I'm, I'm writing people referrals on the computer, I'm looking up things on my phone. Um, reduction in screen time is very, very hard. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're able to make certain um, uh, adjustments uh, and ways to reduce, uh, I would definitely encourage that if we can. Sometimes it's unavoidable, but we do our best. Um, and then finally, the use of occasional Tylenol and Advil for those, you know, bigger headaches is totally fine. Um, uh, using them as needed and not just like, oh, well, I think I'm going to have a headache today, so I'm going to take one in, in, you know, in response or in prophylaxis of that. We don't like that as much because there is a, a medical condition um, called medication overuse headache. And that basically happens when people are taking Tylenol and, and Advil on such a regular basis that when they don't take it, they get a headache. Uh, and so that's something that, again, we just want to try to avoid, uh, but definitely using 
Tylenol um, or other uh, NSAIDs as we refer to, which stand for uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs can be very helpful in, uh, in reducing the, uh, the, the severity and the intensity of most headaches. I love that you brought up reduction in, in screen time because I tell this to my patients all the time. I mean, yeah. too much, uh, too many uh, staring activities, which I always say is driving mm. iPhone, iPad, computer. We blink a lot less, so our eyes get drier. So there becomes a discomfort at that level too. But looking at things that are backlit all the time, there's just like someone's constantly sort of shining a dim flashlight into your eyes, yeah. and people don't really think of it that way. But um, it's something that I always recommend to patients, especially they come in and pain behind the eyes for me is, you know, more times than not headaches, um, rather than being something serious. So I talk about reducing screen time with my patients all the time. And now it's sort of funny, because I get laughed at and they're like, with COVID, what else is there to do? So it's very nice that things are opening up again. Hopefully we see a little bit oh. less of these uh, screen related headaches in the coming yeah. uh, years. Yeah. And I think those are three pretty good topics, three things that we, you know, see together, you know, not together, together, but independently together quite often. And I remember when I started my practice, uh, you'd already been in practice for a few years because of the difference in length of residency. And I said to you, I wrote back this note to a family doctor about something and I was worried, <laughs> I was worried that it would be taken the wrong way. And oh. I, you know, about diabetes and, and I, I would suggest this and that. And, you know, just letting you know that it's not under control. And I, I was worried how it would be received by the other person. And I've really come to notice uh, now having been in practice for a few years that it really is so important to communicate with other health professionals, especially referring oh. doctors. And how a little note, one or two sentences goes a really long way. And I was wondering, you know, what your thoughts were on that? Do you prefer letters back? Do you prefer to hear from the patient? You know, as a family doctor referring patients to specialists, especially eye care specialists, what's your preference? What do you think? Yeah, so I definitely agree with you there, Megan. As as a family doctor, I'm I'm kind of the, the coordinator of care. So the more I know about who my patient is seeing, how often they're seeing them, what they're seeing, how things are changing um, means so much. Um, there, you know, there are, you know, certain information that the patient can share with me and they can say, oh, my, my, my endocrinologist gave me this medicine and they can show me. Um, but when I'm really trying to find out like specifics on how severe is your condition, um, uh, how often do you have to do blood tests? When should you see them again? Patients, unfortunately, can sometimes not have not remember all that information or not retain that information. Um, and so when I can say, Oh, well, yeah, I got the note back from Dr. Sanft, um, who saw you for your diabetic retinopathy. And she says that she'd want to see you again in six months. They'd be like, Oh, oh, right. Oh, I didn't. Oh, I didn't remember. She said six months. So I can help Additionally, be a coordinator of care um, and ensure that everything is up, is staying up to date for my patients. Just like you said, with a little note back, doesn't have to be so extensive and detailed. It just has to say, you know, hi there, I saw your patient, you know, you were right, they have this and I want to do this. Or actually, you know, they actually have a different condition um, and I want to treat them this way instead. Um, but a little note goes a long way, definitely. Yeah, I, I love hearing from the, the family doctors or the other doctors that are sending patients to me and 
we sometimes, you know, go back and forth with our faxes in our high-tech uh, medical world. <laughs> we still send faxes, <laughs> um, you know, because sometimes patients change medication and they, I need to look for something different on their, our, their exam, whereas they might see like every, say everything's the same, no new medications. But when I get a note from, a, from another physician saying, actually, they're on this medication, can you mm. see if there's any ocular side effects? It also helps me narrow down my exam and maybe I would spend a little bit more time looking at something that you know if everything was always normal I might not spend as long looking um, if I didn't know I needed to so I think mm -hmm. the bottom line is communication between specialists is super important and that's part of the reason why we want to do this podcast the jointly today we talk to each other a lot about this stuff and we think uh, well, I don't want to speak for you, but I think that communication between specialists is important and uh, this is a good first step. I definitely agree, Megan, and we will continue to have uh, our conversations on a very candid basis. <laughs> and, uh, and hopefully this information has been useful for, uh, for the listeners in, in terms of feeling more comfortable asking uh, questions about thyroid, diabetes, headaches, and even other conditions with uh, their family doctor as well as their ophthalmologist. Yes, and on that note, thank you, Dr. Caitlin Reimer, for <laughs> your time and patience. Well, it's my pleasure, and thanks, Dr. Deborah Megan Sanft, as well. <laughs> All right, have a great afternoon.